the act of going out and eating and sitting down and breaking bread together is something that you can't fully replace and, and outsource to, to online. So we're in this funny kind of business that we can't completely flip to, to online. There will always be an element of, of keeping bricks and mortar. Hi there, you're very welcome back to All In Business, your weekly business show here on Joe, backed by AIB. Well, it's another week in lockdown and another show coming to you from the bedroom. This week, we're looking at the Irish food industry, how it has been impacted by the pandemic and how it's reacted. Here to discuss, we're joined by the co-founder of It's a Cafe and many other food enterprises, Dominique Kemp, and Paul Cadden, the founder of Saba, a chain of Thai and Vietnamese restaurants and takeaways. Our trailblazer is Aidan Connolly, the CEO of ag tech firm Kindus. He's here to tell us how technology is affecting the future of farming and food production. Now, before all that, don't forget to hit subscribe to get the full show each week on podcast and on YouTube. And of course, you'll find us on social media. We're on LinkedIn and Twitter with the hashtag All In Business. Joe presents All In, together with AIB, backing Irish business. Dominique and Paul, you're so welcome to the show. You're both in food services, so many might say you're in the enviable position that um, your services are still required and deemed essential. However, that doesn't mean that you haven't been affected by COVID. How are things doing? How are you holding up in both your businesses? Yeah, well, it's, it's, uh, uh, we made the decision to uh, close everything and we discussed whether we would make an attempt to try and reopen and, and sort of pivot to do some deliveries or uh, minimise takeout. But I think in the end, uh, there was a little bit of, uh, I suppose, uh, concern amongst staff about, you know, uh, how realistic it would be in order to keep the sort of uh, social distancing and so on. And I guess... Because it's not really our core business, we made the decision we could be throwing good money after bad, trying to do something that we're not really equipped to do. And if further limitations come um, down the line, will we have just spent time and money and not really been successful? So I think we, we took the decision to kind of stand down and just wait it out. Um, and I suppose we look and applaud all the companies like Paul and so on who actually have done it and have managed to do it really well and really safely. Um, but I suppose it's, it's not the decision we made. Tommy, on that, when all we're hearing is, uh, you know, think creatively, think outside the box, adapt or die, be innovative. Um, and obviously, as a very successful businesswoman yourself, you're obviously used to doing all those things. It must have been, um, I'd ima- you know, I'd imagine that wasn't a clear-cut decision for you. It must have been a challenge and something you had to mull over for a while to come up with that decision. Yeah, I think you've you've hit the nail on the head because there is this absolute frustration. And I suppose entrepreneurs in general, you know, the the problems come at them and it's really about trying to, to, you know, find ways to overcome those difficulties uh, and continually challenge yourself and, and, and just to get on with it. Um, so it was actually quite hard to make the decision to, to not do anything. Um, and uh, so, like, I, in some ways I regret it, but I think in, in, in some ways, though, I suppose we all need a lot of energy for when we reopen. Um, and it just felt like it was going to be too messy for our business. Um, and again, I think most businesses now, because we've all sort of been put into hibernation, the main thing is trying to conserve cash you know, for when we reopen, because we don't know the sort of limitations that are going to be on us in terms of we have restaurants and we're told to pull 50% of our seating outside. 
how can we operate at 50% capacity? So there are all these concerns and worries that I have uh, going forward. And I guess for us, it's about trying to, to keep cash and preserve the business. Um, that's our main focus when we are allowed reopen. And Paul, you've had kind of the opposite experience in a way. I know you closed down all six of your branches, but you're in your Baggett Street branch today where a, a staggered um, reopening of sorts is happening. Tell us about that. Yeah, oh, I empathise with Domini. We, on the night the lockdown was announced, we called, we had two places open at the time, uh, Baggett Street and Rat Mines. Uh, we called a meeting and everybody was the exact same. Let's close safety uh, first. And it, uh, so we closed for the two weeks um, and then coming towards the second two weeks, we're in a fortunate position where we, we have a tight team here in Baggett Street, three chefs in the kitchen who, Two of them live together and the other person is, they all travel by bike, walk and the management team as well. There's three of them and they were the exact same guys who closed on the night of the lockdown and the exact same thing happened in Rat Mines. Um, you know, father, son and uh, another colleague who lived with them, they're working in the kitchen and my brother, another manager from uh, Clarendon Street are out front um, so they're tight teams and as we opened uh, Dean's Grange as well it's guys living together and know each other and they're all happy to open um, you know and that, that was the fortunate position we're on much limited um, um, more limited menu um, you know everybody's rolled up the sleeves we're doing the cleaning everybody you know there's there's very limited number of staff in the place it's delivery delivery only a limited collections when you come to the door um, for people who are local, regular customers and that. Um, and yeah, it's been really challenging. Um, it's, yeah, and I think the exact same as Dominic says, you're an entrepreneur and you want to pivot, but there's only so much you can pivot. You're, mm-hmm. It's not like a recession where, come on, let's think of a new idea and you get it up yeah. and running and you hope for the best. You know, people can die. <laughs> people are dying and that's, that's the most frightening part of this. One part of your brain is going, Let's think of a new idea. How can we yeah. attack this differently? And then you sit back and you get this over, you're overwhelmed with nearly sometimes stories. You know, I have friends who work in the front line um, in hospitals in Dublin. And, uh, you know, that's a totally different scenario. We're so lucky not to be uh, in that scenario. So you've got all these different crazy emotions going on at that time and you're trying to find a pathway, pathway mm. through, you know. Um, And I'm curious, Paul, in terms of, you know, you've had different uh, paths, both of you, to where you are now in that um, Domini made the decision to uh, not to do anything, I suppose, and to sit tight uh, and ride out the storm. Whereas Paul, uh, and so I I suppose in one way, Domini, when that decision's made, it's quite definitive. Whereas Paul, you taking the other road, um, that comes with many, many more decisions on top of it. You know, everything down to what kind of menu are we going to offer? Uh, you know, how's this going to work? Um, I know that you'd be very conscious of your own staff and the Saba family, as well as um, customers and health and safety and so on. But how do you know where the line is and how do you know how far to take it? Uh, you know, how do you know two branches instead of six, um, two dishes instead of 10 I'm just curious as to how you how you made these decisions as they came up and how you know what the right decision is. I suppose you, you, you never know the right decision. <laughs> yeah. 
if I if I knew that, I'd probably be out of this game a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Definitely be doing something. I, yeah, as I, as I, I joke, I, I grew up in the business. Both my parents were uh, hoteliers and we had a restaurant in Westport. And I have two younger brothers, one, Alan, who runs uh, his ops uh, for the takeaways. And my other brother has bar one in Castle Bar. And I, I think we almost been dropped as children because we're <laughs> to stay in this business is it can be crazy time I right, Dominique? Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> uh, but to answer the question, yeah, where is it? Uh, listen, you're guided by your team. Every single decision we've made is sit down with the guys. We opened uh, thir- Holy Thursday uh, again, and we said we'll take it two day every two days to make a decision, and it's a team team decision uh, to close it. And if they decide again you know, listen, it's time to close it again. We'll do that. And listen, we're, we're guided as well by, I think, the fantastic leadership of the government. You know, they've been um, clear on takeaways can stay open if the, you know, the, the distancing can be done. Uh, we've done our kitchen to split into three different zones. Um, and, you know, same, we've one uh, manager in the kitchen for bagging, one at the front for taking calls, and then a runner, you know. So, we're, we're, we're putting everything in place. If staff, we have masks available, if staff want to wear masks, we put screens up uh, throughout uh, the three units. Uh, in the, you see them in supermarkets as well. Gloves, sanitizers, places deep cleaned every day. You know, we, we literally, every single thing we can do, we've done. I think that, that's such an interesting point though as well, because it's like, it's, it's during times of crisis as the the boss of the the company you have to show leadership and you have to drive through these problems but you know as Paul said these were things that it was sort of leadership but with with in a very democratic way because if you don't have the support of your teams and you aren't making these decisions collectively you you can't drive people into this scenario to come and work it, it just doesn't work so it's 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 the the nicest form of leadership you know that you could ask for and again as we were talking about very different from the last recession in terms of yeah it was it was constantly thinking of innovation and and what felt like how can you you know who can hold their breath for the longest that's what the mm. the, the financial crisis felt like here we're all wondering is there going to be this kind of bounce back is it going to be then restricted because of legislation that that will will affect the levels of business that we can do, you know, what, what's it going to be like? And, you know, I'm trying to read up on, on terms of, of what happened in, in, during the SARS crisis in, in 2003. And, of course, there was a huge explosion in online business. A lot of businesses did design to pack up their kind of bricks and mortar stores. There's an element of, of food and restaurants that we can't con- constantly outsource. Of course, delivery is huge. Online deliveries, Deliveroo, Just Eat, all these companies. But at the same time, the act of going out and eating and sitting down and breaking bread together is something that you can't fully replace and, and outsource to, to online. So we're in this funny kind of business that we can't completely flip to, to online. There will always be an element of, of keeping bricks and mortar, but I guess it's trying to figure out how much that is going to change, uh, especially uh, with a, a society like ours that are unbelievably sociable. You know, we love, yeah love sitting down together that is something we, we really do well as a country yeah. so um what's that going to look like in the next few years I suppose you can't replace the experiential side of eating out as you rightly say and the, the social side and everything else um 
uh, we're probably heading into a funny period now where as this continues, there are absolutely more business closures coming, unfortunately. Mm. But the huge contrast of that will presumably be, especially for anything in, in, in you know, in food, uh, socializing, hospitality, that there's presumably also a huge boom coming on the other side as we all scramble to feel alive again. Um, a huge boom coming for those who are still around and still still open. Um for for yourselves, but also not just for yourselves. I'm sure you have many, you know, colleagues and friends in in the business community. What is the feeling about that? Is there a huge sense of anticipation, or is there also a lot of fear about what's coming afterwards? Yeah, I, I, I'm. I've definitely spoken to a few people who are are very apprehensive, whose whose restaurants and businesses would be quite heavily influenced by uh, tourist trade. Now, certainly for us, you know, we operate um, about 12 different locations. Some of them are actually in museum locations. So again, we'll be hit there because of, of visitor numbers um, and the decline in tourists. That season really runs from March to September, October. So that hit and that that boost that you need, that will be gone. And we just have to uh, adjust, adjust our projections, look at our budgets and be realistic about what the, the knock-on impact is going to be. But I think, um, interestingly, you know, we, we do uh, a lot of high-end events and corporate catering and wedding through feast catering and events. And interestingly, although we lost a couple of weddings for, for May, um, uh, we actually have gained a few weddings in <laughs> September because people who can't okay. travel to Italy are now going to get married here in Ireland. So, right. You know, there, there's been a couple of silver linings, not loads, but some. Um, and I guess it's just trying to see what that might look like. And again, a little bit like the 2008, there was such a big push by Fault Ireland and everything about staycation, you know, actually really this this amazing sort of uh, em- embracing of everything Irish. And it was a great time in terms of Irish food and as new businesses coming in and entering uh, you know, the, the the food and restaurant and hospitality because the, the entry points were so low. It was really easy economically to, to enter. And I, de- I I think, Paul, you'd agree there's probably been a huge uh, oversupply in the last year or two. You know, there's been a restaurant opening after opening after mm-hmm. opening. And we've all probably been saying to ourselves, you know, how much can we tolerate in terms of the supply and demand? We're not London. We don't have this density of population and just the supply is too much. Um, we have that now. We have this crisis. And the two, absolutely, as you say, Yvonne, will lead to a, a number of closures. Listen, we, we, before going, going into this crisis, I think we were at one of the, high, the highest points in regard to fantastic restaurants th- mm. throughout the country. And what even, was even better was they were showcasing Irish produce from, you know, we really became a, or have become a food nation. And even... If you see how suppliers now are pivoting online and people are buying their produce from, I see St. Tullis Cheese, who never had an online presence and so many uh, different uh, producers pulling a lot of small producers together and selling them. It's, fun- it's fantastic to keep mm. those guys going. Um, and throughout the country, amazing restaurants who are all really nervous about how they're going to open up and whether it's going to be slow, etc. I do think... Fulcher Ireland and Tourism Ireland will put huge investment mm, into staycation. Yeah. Mm. Um, and uh, I think that's that's where the key is. Like at the end of the day, we have the Facebooks and the Googles and all these big companies in Ireland. Uh, you know, there's a lot of inward investment. It will be a different uh, economy after this. If you look at, I 
reading up in articles of what's happening and talking to guys here uh, who have seen what happened in Wuhan, like their the restaurants are back open and cinemas, mm. but there's nobody going to them. So there will have to be a confidence building exercise for customers to say, yes, we are safe. This is how we're going to do it um, when that time comes. And Paul, you mentioned earlier that you thought the government were doing a great job in terms of leadership. I'm wondering what you both feel they could be doing more of or what you feel they should do um, when this is all over to kickstart things again so that we don't enter, um, you know, a depression even bigger than 08, I suppose. What? Yeah, well, I think that definitely, I mean, the VAT, we've we've all been um, pretty vocal in our industry about the uh, the VAT remaining at 13.5%, you know, and I think dropping that down or potentially looking at scrapping that for a bit, you know, that will definitely ease. Rents uh, have become a problem again for a lot of us uh, in terms of just rent creep. Um, and everyone's done a great job. And, um, you know, one of the key things is, is to make sure that there's cohesion, cohesion about what they're saying and, <clears throat> excuse me, that it's consistent in terms of public messaging. And exactly as Paul says, that confidence building piece will be critical to getting people because we've all got so used to staying at home now. We're going to have to be, you know, practically beaten out of our houses to, to get back out there. And, and that mm. will be about positive messaging and uh, reducing people's uh, fear of going out again. And then business-wise, I guess, is marketing more important than ever then to <coughs> remind people you're, you're still there and, you know, you, you still exist and you're still around afterwards? Yeah, I, I, I think there's, there's a couple elements to that where you've also got to convince people, well, the people sitting at home who are maybe yet getting the 350 a week, they have to see an end to this so they, they, mm-hmm. they, they will allow themselves to spend. I think a lot of people are minding whatever they have uh, and they'll be hesitant to spend anything. And that can, we're also seeing that in the delivery. It's not just because the takeaways are open, we're not flat out at all. You can see where people are holding back. Um, yeah. I think there was a holiday, the first two weeks of the lockdown, you know, it was like Christmas every day and off licenses and takeaways were flying and everything else. And then when the next month, literally a month was announced, everybody went, well, hold on a second. This is could last. There was a realization there to maybe pull in your horns a little bit. So nobody really knows how long this is going to go on for. And I think, I think we've, as a nation, we've been done fantastically. Everybody is so, so supportive of each other. Yeah, you know, amazing. we're here. We're hearing a Zoom call, like, you know, who'd have thought that like a couple of months ago. Um, so I, I just think like everybody's adapting really well. And it's, it's so, they, it's, so it's pretty, people have confidence that they'll have money in their pocket. And then we can do the confidence piece in the restaurant. And I think we're in the containment phase now for the government. And then there'll be a reboot phase. And it's like what they come up with, like 0% VAT on food. We've been saying that for a long time. Yeah. Uh, in, this, you know, if, if across Europe and America, you're allowed to claim back expenses if anyone in business dines out. We still don't have that in Ireland. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's loads of different uh, pieces there that can, can, even in regard to in France, uh, the government have taken 60% of the rent, the landlord has taken, a sli- uh, taken 20%, and the restaurateurs are paying 20% to get them back open. So you're talking about rent creep there now. Like that's that's a big investment, you know. But like these are probably the things that have to have to go. Like you know the numbers are staggering. Like if fifty percent of restaurants close, that's a lot, a lot of staff. That's a lot of you know uh, 
beef farmers, dairy farmers, small producers supplying into those restaurants, you know, from electricians fixing stuff. Like the, the spread of the multiplier effect of a restaurant throughout a local economy is huge. So, yeah. uh, you know, especially in rural Ireland, you know, it, it, the, the, a, a big restaurant can, <coughs> or a hot, or, and hotels as well, you know, the, the, the hotel stock throughout the country is absolutely fantastic. Mm. We've fanta- if we can keep people in Ireland for, and spend in Ireland, uh, I think that will definitely help, but the incentives have to be there. And you both come from entrepreneurial families and backgrounds. Uh, so I'm guessing you picked up a thing or two from watching your own your own families and your network um, weather the storm before dealing with previous crises. You must have learned a lot from that. Yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's been interesting, um, I suppose, because uh, my sister and I were in business together and we were just like, we were talking about the fact that we just last year celebrated our 20th year in business and looking at all the different sort of bubbles and peaks and troughs and all the things that happen and I mean I do I do think it's sort of um it's interesting you know two of the worst crises you know 2008 and now this it's sort of like going you know come on can we just spread it out a little bit you know we just, <laughs> yeah. just we catch a break a little bit of break exactly yeah. so um I definitely I, I think you know when you when you've gone through uh, different crises I, I think you you know and with age as well comes an element of confidence of being able to know how low you can go and and the the you know I hate the expression digging deep but you know there are times where you do have to dig deep into your own psyche uh in terms of psychologically remaining strong remaining leadership you know you have to be a leader during these times of crisis people need to see confidence your teams need to see you confident and it it isn't a sort of Pollyanna upbeat it's all you know fabulous it's not this whole thing sucks but at the same time we do have to be mindful. You know, we have electricity, we have water, there are no bombs mm. raining down on us. We're in a really much better position than so many people. And again, it's to try and remember that um, and not get sucked into the, the quagmire of, of misery. Um, mm. And I suppose I've been having conversations with people who are, who are heading that way. And I just going <laughs> to say, listen, we just you know, not doing it. I'm not doing it back, because yeah, yeah mm. it's just, it's, it's not, it's not helpful right now. And we, mm. we just don't know to a certain extent. So it's each day that comes being vigilant, being open to ideas, but um, minding your cash and keeping your energy and keeping your head good for, for when we do open, because my goodness, we will need we will need the resources <laughs> for when the doors open again. And Paul, your family opened the hotel and Mayo and the restaurant as well. Um God, surely back in the eighties, etc., must have seen they've seen a recession or two. Yeah, they've they've seen uh, we we've a good few laughs over the last few days, and I'm uh, and I, you're totally right. State of mind, I think, at the moment is mm. everything, you know, because so it's right, so yeah. easy, so easy to, to get pulled down. And listen, in the rest, in the, I think before the lockdown happened, the stress in the in the business, you could feel everyone was scared. And now we're back open and we're having a laugh. We're, you know, yeah. it's, it, there's a great atmosphere and everybody's happy to be back, which is great. Um, but yeah, my parents, uh, they had a restaurant, a seafood restaurant in Westport and they had, yeah, oil crisis and 
uh, massive uh, interest rates and loads of they didn't have a yeah. pandemic they didn't have <laughs> <laughs> we've got that one on them <laughs> uh, not so, a competition poll no. <laughs> not a competition but if it was I think we'd win we'd I think, I think yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but and congratulations 20 years in business that's phenomenal well oh, done thank that's, you yeah that's a, that's a group that's a fantastic achievement yeah. Um, so so yeah I think yeah listen we, we sat around the table as kids talking about the business Um and challenges but there were the day-to-day stuff you know this this really you do go look at other uh people like Domini in the industry and listen to them and you know they've got it's it's as you said the experience and the wisdom that you know you can't buy that stuff you know yeah. it's just people have it and when they say something such gravitas to it and hence i'm talking to a lot of friends in the industry listening to what they have to say and you're right it's about mindset and we'll get through this and taking care of their teams and looking forward as much as possible, you know, because uh, you don't have a crystal ball. Well, I think that's a perfect place to leave it, you guys. Thank you so much for being with us. And I have to say all this talk about food and, and socializing <laughs> with food, I would give anything to be in an Itza cafe or a Saba right now, I can tell great you. Stuff, um, great stuff. But uh, we'll all see you on, on the far side and, um, Listen, stay safe, stay, stay in business. We need, yeah, we need yeah, places exactly. to go and eat afterwards. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Thank you so much, Yvonne. Yeah. Thank you, Yvonne. Thank you, Dominique. Bye, Paul. Mind yourself. Bye-bye. Take care. Joe presents All In, together with AIB, backing Irish business. My next guest has quite the laundry list of achievements to his name. President of Agritech Capital Investing Firm, CEO of Kindus, and member of the Forbes Technology Council. Aidan Connolly is here to tell us why the future of farming and food production is about to change forever. Aidan, thank you so much for joining us this morning from your house in Dublin. Thanks for being with us. I wanted to start this off by asking you, what do you think is the most exciting thing going on in ag tech right now? Well, ag tech is something that people have been talking about for obviously quite a few years. And the presumption is that that's going to change the way we farm and that's the way we produce food. But in actual fact, um, the adoption of technology has been quite slow. I suppose farming is conservative and uh, that's the nature of the business. But this process, unfortunately, you know, which is obviously affecting a lot of lives, is actually accelerating the adoption of ag technology on farm to a degree that we haven't seen before. Mm-hmm. In particular, some maybe of the things that maybe seem a little bit more boring, like um, trading platforms, uh, data collection, those are all being suddenly accepted by farmers in a way that perhaps they didn't before. But I think everything to do with the digitization of agriculture is expanding and accelerating at the moment. And it's even the small things, I suppose, like, you know, if it's, if it's calving season and suddenly, you know, you have nine, ten calves that you, there are no marts open. So what do you do if you can't go digital? So, you know, are we talking um, change at the broad strokes level, but also probably, um, you know, at the really fundamental level? All of those. So everything to do with being able to avoid having people come onto the farm, avoiding the farmer having to go to, as you said, the mart. Suddenly we have to be able to take out a camera phone, take a photograph of your animal, send it to somebody else. And fundamentally, that's predicated upon trust. So things like blockchain, things like uh, obviously the previous experience or history of the seller and the buyer, all those things suddenly become parts of 
this digital agriculture that we've always talked about happening, but really hasn't. If you think, Yvonne, about agriculture, I suppose it's sometimes hard to believe, but we've only been farming for about eight or 9,000 years. Now, to put that in context, we have been on the earth for over a million. So why it was we decided 9,000 years ago to suddenly start farming is one of those questions that um, lots of people have asked, and it's assumed it coincides with the end of the last ice age. But the reality is pretty much since we domesticated the cow, domesticated the sheep, uh, the chicken, wheat, barley, you know, something like uh, nine crops and six livestock species, pretty much since then, not a whole lot has changed. So the idea that suddenly we're going to be in a position to watch precisely crops, animals, to see exactly what they're doing, how they're growing, the stress they're under, uh, their health, that's just extraordinary. And I think it's critical not just for not just for farmers, but obviously for consumers as well. Consumers want to know more about where their food is coming from. Exactly. And I think probably um, COVID's doing a lot for that at the moment as well. Last week we had um, Michael <laughs> Kelly from, from Grow It Yourself on, on the show and he was saying that uh, the demand for Grow It Yourself kits has gone off the charts because, you know, first of all, people have nothing else to do, um, stuck at home on lockdown. And secondly, I suppose things like we're having good weather and, and people are trying to keep kids at home occupied. Um, do you think farming might enjoy, I mean, look, obviously people, there's no Grow It Yourself kit uh, for learning how to farm in a lockdown, but uh, people might have a renewed interest in things like where their food comes from, especially now we're maybe worrying about things like like food shortages, depending on how long this goes on for. Absolutely. There is a, um, well, there has been a greater interest in food production for quite a while. And people have been more and more concerned about how their food is produced, how it's treated, what's added to it, all aspects of that. Um, and the fact of being connected now to the soil, literally, by growing things in your back garden, that's clearly part of what we're going to see moving forward. That said, it's also been interesting to see how people have returned to more classical foods. Um, even the fact of, I know that in the United States, uh, some of these plant-based alternative meats, uh, in particular, are really struggling to make sales. Uh, things that are further processed, um, People are looking for things that they can freeze, that have long shelf lives, that they understand what the label shows. Um, it's been just quite a, really, really fascinating to see how COVID, how coronavirus has shifted the patterns in terms of what we want and where we get it from. Um, and in terms of the shift in the wider industry, in, um, now that I suppose COVID is here and we don't know how long it's going to be here for, um, presumably in any business, um, and agriculture is no exception, adaptability is key at the moment. What kind of adaptability are you seeing or what stories are you hearing of how people in the business um, have had to kind of adapt and change their model and change their thinking to stay afloat? Yeah, I suppose um, <clears throat> the most obvious one is that farming has always been belly-to-belly -belly relationships both sales and marketing, always done face-to-face -face people who knew people for generations. Um, my first sales call in Ireland, uh, we went with uh, to see some farmers, and each meeting at that stage was taking two hours. And during the two hours, we talked about nothing about the business. We talked more about, and I came away saying, I'm going to die if I've got to do this all the time. And uh, the salesperson from the co-op said, look, what they're doing is trying to understand you. Are you the type of person... Uh, that they'd like to do business with? Are you the type of person that they trust? Now, the reality of farming, as it is with all businesses, 
that two-hour period has accelerated and accelerated and been reduced to a shorter and shorter period of time. And as a result, we're dealing with situations where already um, the farming sales, farming marketing, something they're purchasing, something they're selling, uh, is very much being, being reduced to, um, let's call it <coughs> quite a short, um, short conversation, short relationship. I think agricultural technologies, uh, obviously I work for a company that's using cameras to watch animals. That means that the veterinarian doesn't need to turn up all the time. That means that the nutritionist, the person making the feed formulations, doesn't need to be on the farm all the time. And even the farmer can watch his, his cows or other animals t- 24 hours a day. So that's clearly part of where we're going in terms of this type of technology. I see 3D printers. You know, you wouldn't imagine 3D printers on a farm, but what happens when your tractor breaks down? What happens when the feeder doesn't work? What happens if... So the ability to be able to print the, that part in real time directly from something that you access on the internet, tremendously exciting. And even we see 3D printers uh, allowing you to print your own pizzas and print your own cakes and print other things. So technologies like that that I really think we've talked about for a while, there's a very precise immediate need now being driven by coronavirus. You did mention at the start of this conversation that uh, farming is a very conservative industry. I'm wondering, is there a divide um, emerging then between um, maybe younger farmers or more innovative farmers, more adaptable farmers who um, you know, are embracing all this new technology and the more conservative ones who, will they, will they fall behind? You know, Is there going to be a huge divide that emerges from all this? Um, that's certainly possible and to some degree probably was happening already. That said, um, I, my, my mother, when we gave her an iPad, I think was surgically attached to her arm because every time you ever asked her about anybody, she would immediately tell you how she had just checked them out on Google. Um, we hear lots of people are saying they're 72-year-olds, 74-year-olds who are suddenly experts in Zoom and uh, if not necessarily had to change the background, certainly understand that technology as well. So as needs are created, clearly that does change behavior. And I think everything is possible if you need to learn. What is very clear uh, from my perspective is that there are a lot of positives from um, not the disease, but perhaps uh, the situation. And having followed some of the previous uh, interviews that you've done on Joe.ie, I know you have featured this quite a lot. Uh, people uh, talking to us about how we might upskill ourselves during this period, how we might find that opportunity, that time to connect with family. And both of those, I didn't steal them from you, but nonetheless, uh, they were uh, they were in there as things that I found when I was talking to food companies, feed companies, people involved in farming and agriculture. They were talking very much about upskilling. <clears throat> I think this connected thing is obviously something I've mentioned already. That's absolutely critical. Um, I think the opportunity to look at costs, sometimes there's things that you just continue doing because they're easy to do, because you want to do them, because you feel that they're, well, we've done it that way always, why would we change? This is probably the opportunity to ask the question, why is your business designed the way it is? Why is your farm constructed the way it is? Mm. Why do I work with these people? Why do I not work with others? Where could costs be stripped out of the system that would have no uh, no immediate uh, damage to my business and might actually benefit it. So it's things like that that I think this um, this moment, I called it um, 
making lemonade out of lemons, mm. uh, which is obviously a famous phrase. There's another one by Warren Buffett, which is um, when the tide goes out, you see who's swimming naked. Uh, since we uh, had to have an image to go with the blog and go with the article, I felt that that wasn't going to be an appropriate one. Lemons <laughs> lemonade, probably work better. Yeah, <laughs> Exactly. Lemonade and lemons is probably a little bit easier for the graphic artist to work with. Mm. But it's the same idea that in some ways there's a lot of, from a business perspective, there's a lot of negatives that go. Uh, it's very hard to reimagine, to repurpose your mind. But I've seen business after business do it. I've encouraged people to, if you have customers, try to hold something that isn't just describing. I, I, I watch and listen to the news here um, in the morning, RT, and it's just unmitigatingly negative. And, and I appreciate this disease is having extraordinarily uh, terrible impacts on so many people. And there are a lot of heroes in the front line trying to fight it. But at the same time, we also need to think about, um, we can't change the situation. What can we do to change our are the, the outcomes from that situation. What can we do to change our attitude to it? And I think in particular, the businesses I've worked with, I've mm. said to them, let's hold webinars, let's hold uh, ways to, in, to reach out to customers and give them ideas of where people are doing the right things, doing new things, and use that innovation to maybe make something good out of this very bad situation. Well, that's exactly it. I suppose we're all hoping something good will come from this. Um, I know you mentioned before um, that Newton's theory of gravity was born out of a pandemic. Um, without asking you to predict the future across any industry, what might come out of all this that we could um, use to improve our situation? I guess as a society, you know, irrespective of what industry anyone's in. The um, average American is supposed to commute. The commute is something like 47, 48 minutes. And in the UK, they say as we get older, they've been doing studies with, with, with managers and finding that those in their 50s are the ones who commute the longest, well over an hour on average. <clears throat> that's an hour every day, two, uh, obviously there and back, so that's two hours a day. What could we do to recapture that time? Most businesses have worked on the basis that you can't work virtually. You can't work from home. It's not possible to achieve things. And what we've learned, I think, over the last, uh, over the last few weeks certainly is that working from home is possible. We've also said, I don't want to be the one to, I mentioned 3D printers. I don't want to train my people online or using virtual reality or augmented reality. Well, guess what? We need to embrace that now. I've mentioned the cameras that we're working with in Cantus. Uh, we're working with them at cows. There's so many different applications of that technology. We've seen it in many uh, big brotherish bad ways, but actually there's so much positive that could be done with it. Um, clearly, again, all aspects of things like blockchain, we say we're going to do it. We see the advantages of it. It brings transparency. It brings trust. Yet in a situation like this, it's clear why we should have embraced it faster and why should that already be implemented. So. I I think that um, I hope that we come out of this, obviously, with an acceleration of technology. Some of the things that we're going to have to do to be resilient perhaps are going to be counter to the typical business um, thought processes of let's be efficient, let's be fast, let's be nimble. We're going to find ourselves being hamstrung a little bit by some of what has to happen to make sure that when the next problem arises, and I'm sure there will be more, um, that we're ready for them. But at the same time, their technology is clearly going to be a winner out of all of this. And what about people, Aidan? Because, you know, any any business in any industry, 
comes down to people in terms of staff. Um, I'm wondering how your own team are doing and, and what's the resilience like there? Well, some of them are loving it. Um, I have a team here in Dublin of 40 people. Our sales and marketing are overseas. Uh, we're actually selling primarily into California. Um, I'm sure that for the first few weeks, uh, most of my team thought this is fantastic. Get to stay at home. Um, they typically are a little bit uh, less extroverted. So that means uh, because of your programming algorithms, engineers. Um, obviously, as time goes on, mental health is a real issue for everybody. So staying positive. Uh, we've done everything we can from virtual work, water coolers, virtual uh, lunches, karaoke at the weekend. Um, we've uh, tried as much as possible to bring on. We have a weekly meeting that's a Zoom meeting try to bring on some, some guest speakers to talk about uh, different ways in which the world will be, will be now, will be in the future. Because um, even, for, even if you're very introverted, even if you don't particularly like people, uh, it's still important to have access to, you know, you suddenly realize the value of being in an office as well. So I think that it's a terribly challenging time for all of us. Um, but in general, I would say that uh, my team at least has embraced it very positively. We had had 12 months where we were all working together in an office. So the relationships between all of us were good. Mm -hmm. And I think for those 40 people, uh, working virtually has been relatively seamless compared to what I would have expected. Okay, always good to hear. Um, we're almost out of time, Aidan, but I wanted to uh, leave you with, uh, well, I wanted to hit you with a pretty, uh, a pretty big question before we let you go. Um, Farming in 2050 and indeed diet in 2050. You mentioned earlier, you know, plant-based meat alternatives, etc. Um, on the one hand, they seem to be getting increasingly popular. Um, but on the other hand, you know, there's a lot of pushback against them. Are we witnessing, you know, maybe not right the second, but over the next 30 odd years, will we witness um, the end of farming as we currently know it? Uh, I suppose, what will the future bring for, for the industry as well as for food production? I typically uh, get to be go to a lot of conferences um, in a year and speak both to consumer groups and farming groups and people involved in agriculture. And whenever I'm asked the question, where are we going to be in 10 years, 15 years, I'm quite happy to answer it. When somebody like you asks me, where are we going to be in 2050? I usually refuse because there is so much going to change. Mm. Um, if you ever read of any Yuval Noah's books on Homo sapiens, Homo Deus, um, 21 lessons for the 21st century. These are things that are quite scary. That um, convergence of man and machine makes me wonder what exactly we're going to uh, be feeding in 2050. Are we actually going to be human at all? So looking into the immediate future, there will be a place for plant-based proteins, of course. However, I think all of us are very concerned by the amount of additives that are going into them to produce what they produce. People talk about Petri dish meats, Mm. frankly, when I see the numbers of antibiotics being fed to them, when I see how they're being produced in these fermenters, there's nothing appealing about them at all to me. We've been very worried about climate change, particularly in Ireland and the effect cows have had on that. It turns out that when we switch off airplanes and we switch off cars, the uh, greenhouse gases go down, but we still have the same number of cows out there. So I think people are going to rethink some aspects of agriculture and probably going to be much more positive about the traditional agricultural ways we've done things and look to try to understand better. You know, I think animal welfare certainly is going to be part of our future, uh, treating our animals properly, making sure that they're happy, 
that they're not sick and they're not being mistreated. Those are all parts of, I think, what's quite critical. Um, what do I think we eat? More precision nutrition. By precision nutrition, that means we understand we've got to feed our genes. We've got to feed the bacteria in our stomach. Uh, those are equally, the microbiome is as important as what we are. And I think that's probably going to mean eating less, uh, eating the food that we need on a particular day, and probably more also devices telling us what, what we should drink or when we should eat, when we shouldn't eat, what exercise we need. But um, it's, it's, I think it's a positive future. I don't think it means by any means the, uh, a reduction of the death in traditional agriculture. I think it's just going to be allied to other technologies. And those technologies will make us healthier and hope a lead for uh, happier lives for all of us. And more resistant to viruses when they come along, perhaps, from, uh, from a standpoint well, of health. Um, well, definitely, definitely so, Yvonne. Uh, I know that I've looked at my diets and thought, I'm eating fish for omega-3. Have I got the selenium in my diet? Where is my vitamin D coming from, my vitamin E? What am I doing with respect to zinc? All these things are very important uh, when it comes to resisting viruses. So, yeah, nutrition is very important. Well, I think that's a perfectly positive note to end the conversation on, Aidan. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, I think we all got a lot out of that. And I'm sure this won't be the last we see of you. Stay safe uh, until this all passes. Thanks, Yvonne. Enjoy this. Thank you. Well, that's it from us for this week. Thanks for being with us as always. And thanks to AIB for backing the show. Don't forget to hit subscribe so that you get the full show on podcast or YouTube each week and so that you never miss an episode. And we'll be here next week. Joe presents All In together with AIB backing Irish business.